I was in the airport on my way home from vacation. Though the vacation had been a very warm and, and bright one, the darkness I would encounter as I headed home would be due to more than just the winter weather and season. That week, I would be moving in with a friend. His spacious house had felt noticeably emptier since his wife moved cross-country with their small children, but without him. Needless to say, his marriage was on the rocks, and, and yet this wasn't the first time a friend of mine had the exact same experience that same year. So after I turned off airplane mode, I noticed that there was a text on my phone as I was sitting there in the airport uh, from a mother of four who had already survived one bout with cancer, asking me if I did or know somebody who did visitations, not for a hospital, but prison. And it wasn't a hypothetical question. As the story came out, the crimes committed by one member of their family against other members of the family how each of them would respond would cause rifts between them that would last for years. The only thing that seemed capable of bringing them back together under the same roof was when my friend's cancer came back. But this time, instead of a, a dinner table gathering, it was the casket that they gathered around. If you had never met any of these people, and I don't think you have, there would still be enough other stories to tell to convince you that the world that we live in is not the way things are supposed to be. We see it in every story of abuse and, and the wide eyes or hypervigilance of its survivors. We see it in the face of, of addiction and the pain borne both by those who experience it and by those who love them. We see it in the shocked, defeated expressions that betrayal leaves behind. We see it in the startling events that make global headlines, but, but also in those that in some communities are so commonplace that though they are worthy of such attention, are just treated as merely a footnote in a long line of, of loss and pain. Sometimes we don't have to look farther than the person in the mirror uh, because of our story of, of the same things. And yet this time of year, as the days are growing shorter and the darkness longer, can be a particular challenge. We might associate the, the holiday season with warmth and, and light and, and but for many, it's a particularly trying season, a time of year when those who are isolated feel that more acutely, a time when loneliness seems to be felt more intensely, a time when depression and suicide rates don't go down, they go up, a time when the impact from the loss of loved ones only seems to magnify and be magnified by their absence at the places that we always used to see them. It's a time when you might feel pressure to put on a bright smile on the outside, after all, it's, it's the holidays, it's the Christmas season, or as the church has long called the season that we are in now, Advent. But a bright outward smile can be far from the darkness that we feel on the inside. As Fleming Rutledge put it, Advent begins in the dark, but it moves toward the light. It's a season that Christians have long taken to reflect on this tension that we experience between the world as it is now and the world that is to come, and longing for that change. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where God's people are acutely feeling the darkness of the broken world that we now live in. They were already living in a place that was hostile to them and their faith, so much so that the first people that came to tell them about Jesus Christ uh, got run out of town before they could finish their work there. But now as they began facing sorrow over the unexpected deaths of their fellow believers, 
Some are not only facing the grief that comes from a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, but, but a grief without hope. And so Paul tells them something that we not only need to know in the face of the darkness of grief, but every day as we wait the light that is to come. In fact, in every chapter, he points them to the same thing, just as we see in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. If you want to follow along, it's page 1840 in your pew Bible. This is God's word. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So what do we see in here? In the midst of their, their grief over the realities of this fallen world, they, just like we, need hope. And that's what Paul is giving here. And we see it in three things that we find here in this passage. What Paul points them to, why he points them to it, and how that becomes our hope. Three things. So, so first of all, what Paul points them to. What does he point them to? The second advent of Jesus. Our word Advent comes from the Latin word for coming. It, it refers to this period of, of preparation for not only the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but also for the second coming. The second Advent Paul points us to is the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 15, talking about the coming of the Lord. And in verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven, from his heavenly dwelling. But this isn't a new teaching. You see, it's the very thing Jesus promised while he was with his disciples. As you heard in the scripture reading, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. I am going away to prepare a place for you, and I will come back. Jesus is coming back, just like he said that he would, and he's preparing something for his followers, the kind of thing that will ease troubled hearts. That's what his, Jesus' followers need reminding of in the present darkness. So what will that be like? If it helps, think, think of it this way. Uh, many of you have seen the, the TV show Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And if not, let me kind of tell you how the episodes go. Every episode begins with a story of hardship, a story of how someone's life is, is not the way things are supposed to be. In one episode, an Alabama family of nine who survived a hurricane have a roof that did not survive the hurricane, leading, leaving them with flood damage in their home but without the means to repair it. In New York, a fraudulent a contractor takes the money and runs, leaving behind a home that is unlivable, but also a single mom with two adopted kids 
now paying the mortgage and the rent for the apartment that they now must stay in. In South Central Los Angeles, a crime leaves a man a paraplegic, but the home he returns to is far from wheelchair accessible. And in the midst of, of their grief and, and others like him, one day, they wake up to a voice on a megaphone saying something like, Hello, Harris family! And they soon learn things are about to change. While the homeowners are whisked away to someplace like Disneyland, their home gets an extreme makeover. What was broken gets fixed. What was unlivable becomes livable again. What was inaccessible becomes accessible. You see, the home makeover is always personal, always perfectly suited to their needs. But the makeover usually doesn't stop there. You see, when the work is done, it's not just like before, or even good as new, it's, it's better than new, often better than they ever imagined. And the cliffhanger for each episode, right before that last commercial break, is the homeowner's return. There's a big bus parked out in front of their home, like, like a curtain waiting to be pulled back to reveal what's behind it. Everyone is longing to see what will soon be visible to all, until they hear the sound that they've been waiting to hear, this loud command, move that bus. And if you've watched the show, you know that whatever lies behind that bus, whatever sight they're going to see, it's going to be glorious. And while every analogy breaks down at, at some point, those words that I just spoke could actually be used to describe what Jesus' return will be like in, in what you might call an episode of an extreme makeover world edition, because Jesus' return will be personal, visible, loud, and glorious. First, Jesus' return will be personal. It, Jesus gives us exactly what we need, namely himself in person. The second advent isn't simply Jesus sending a proxy or even good vibes from afar. We read in verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. His return will be personal, physical, in the flesh. In the book of Acts, after his disciples see Jesus go away, physically ascending to heaven, they're told, this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Not merely a spiritual return, not just the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but the same Jesus himself in the flesh. But it won't just be witnessed by a few. Everyone will see it just as clearly as millions who tuned in got to see what was behind that bus because Jesus' return will be visible. Revelation 1 tells us, look, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, all the peoples of the earth. In the Gospels, Jesus compares his return to the kind of light that pierces the darkness, saying in Luke 17, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. In contrast to the, the darkness of this fallen world, Jesus' return will be bright, visible to all, but it will also be loud, like a, a cosmic megaphone. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. There's no way that you could miss this. And that's a really good thing for Jesus' followers because it will also be glorious. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Not alone, but with a heavenly, angelic entourage. He says in in Matthew's Gospel, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You see, Jesus will return in glory as king. One Paul describes in his letter to the Philippians as having been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what will make this return even more glorious isn't just the way Jesus returns, but what comes with his return. I just got to say, it would take weeks to unpack all the things that come with Jesus' return and all that that would usher in, and that's why we're taking these four Sundays of Advent to do so. But for today, as as we look at the things that the Thessalonian church was dealing with, the ways that we deal with the same things, the reason Paul points them to Christ's return in in this chapter can be summed up in one word, reunion. You see, if the second coming is the what that Paul points them to, the reason why it's a source of hope and encouragement is the reunion that comes with it. See, death is a, a separation body from soul, a people from each other, and that's what the Thessalonian church is dealing with, the unexpected death of their fellow believers before Jesus returned, something that made some fear that those who had already died would miss out on this second coming altogether. And it all happened in a cultural context where there was no hope beyond the grave. New Testament scholar Leon Morris writes, nowhere outside Christianity do we find at this period any widespread view of a worthwhile life beyond the grave. While some philosophers um, had an idea of life beyond the grave, they didn't glory in it. Nowhere did it penetrate the beliefs of, of ordinary people. The typical attitude of the ancient world to death was one of utter hopelessness. As one Greek writer of the time states, hopes are for the living, but the dead are without hope. And yet Paul points them to something that actually gives them a reason for hope, and he doesn't want them to miss it, saying in verse 13, we do not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Let me just clarify. Should you grieve over the loss of fellow believers? Yes, even Jesus grieved as as others were mourning. But you don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Here's why. In that same verse, he says, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. Having fallen asleep here is a metaphor for having died, but it's no accidental image. You see, just like those who lie down asleep may appear the same as those who are dead, but will wake up and will rise again, so those who have died in Christ will awake from the grave and rise at the second coming. As Paul writes in verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Why? Because there will be a reunion of soul and body. There's so much more that we could say just about this point, about the resurrection of the body, that that Sam's going to be preaching a whole sermon on this later this month, so stay tuned. Um, but, but But that's not the only reason. That's not the only reunion that would come. You see, those that they have been separated from by death Uh, those that they feared would miss out on Jesus' second coming, would return to the land of the living. When Jesus returns, so will they. He's bringing them with 
him. In the next verse, Paul tells them that the believers who are still alive at this time will be caught up together with him. They were separated from their spiritual brethren by death, but at Christ's return, they will be together again. There would be a reunion. Verse 14, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, Jesus is coming back, but he's not the only one. And yet the greatest reunion isn't the one with departed siblings in the faith, but with Jesus himself. Paul saves the best news for last in verse 17 when he concludes, so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You see, whether we're still alive at that point or not, we will be with the Lord forever. Now, it may go without saying, but the greatest thing that comes with the second coming of Jesus is actually Jesus himself, his presence with his people. And knowing that, Jesus prayed for just that thing. In John 17, we read uh, what's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer, his prayer for his people. Toward the end of the prayer, he says, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And we hear about that final reunion, being with King Jesus, God in the flesh, and the age that it brings in Revelation chapter 21, where we find this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The Extreme Makeover World Edition. But it's not merely a physical makeover. You see, all of those things that will pass away, pass away because all the reasons from them will pass away. There will be no more injustice, no more slander, no more hatred, no more children bearing parents or parents bearing children. No more locking your doors for fears of what others might try to do or take. No more worrying about the safety and the security of loved ones. No more mistreatment because of one's ethnicity, disability, age, financial situation, or anything else. No more broken relationships or broken families. No more broken hearts. No more tears. Because there will be no more reason for them any longer. That is what we're waiting for at Advent. Jesus to come back, wipe away our tears, and to make everything new, to put them back to the way that they were meant to be. That is what we're waiting for at Advent. Waiting for what's described in chapter 5, verse 2, as the day of the Lord. The scripture elsewhere describes as the day of redemption. That day, even the great day. And as my two-year-old will tell you, waiting for great things is hard. But even more so when you don't know how long until that day will come. Some years ago, a primetime TV news magazine told the story of a family whose firstborn son, who was in middle school at the time, had dropped out of school and left home. While his family was at home, the boy wandered the streets, aimless in more ways than one, for several years before a friend's family took him in 
the mother who was a follower of Jesus, pleaded for her son's return, holding out hope that one day he would return. For all the years that he had been missing, she did something. She, she set a place at the dinner table for him, hoping that he might come home to eat dinner with his family. You can just imagine the grief that she and the rest of the family felt, but the longing, but also the temptation. The temptation as she maybe hesitates for setting a place for her missing son, the temptation to lose hope, the temptation to set one less place at the dinner table, to live like the long-awaited return would never happen, to grieve like those who have no hope. But she endured, and one day, the object of their hope returned. The empty chair was empty no longer. You can just imagine the, the joy, the relief, how daily tears of grief would give way to tears of joy as a mother throws her arm around her son's neck and just starts ugly crying, shamelessly show, but she doesn't care. She just embraces him. And of all days, the reunion happened at the very end of Advent on Christmas Eve. And yet, in the days before the son's return, that empty chair remained a symbol of both her grief and her hope. Grief over the fact that things were not the way they were supposed to be, and yet hope for a day when things would be different. And in a sense, an empty chair is a picture of where we are at in our story today. You see, the day of the return isn't just what one family was waiting for, but in a sense, what we're waiting for too. And while the son's family was offered no guarantee of the return of that they longed for, in God's family, we are offered that guarantee. Jesus said, I will come back. And yet, just like that family, we don't know when. As chapter 5 begins, Paul tells the church, now brothers, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus' return, will come like a thief in the night. Jesus had already used the same imagery to convey the unexpected timing of his return, to say that nobody on earth knows the hour nor the day that this would happen. You see, we don't know when the Son of God will return any more than that middle schooler's family knew when their son would return. But our anticipation should be no less, not, but not just an anticipation of what it would mean for a few people gathered around one dinner table while the rest of the world stays the same, but waiting for a return that impacts all of life, the effects of which would be seen all around the world. A hope for a return and a reunion that all hinges on what Paul says in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And yet, as you know, just because someone has done something, like gone to the moon or run a four-minute mile, doesn't automatically mean that we're going to do the same. So why is Paul so certain that we too will rise from the dead, that the reunion that he talks about is actually going to happen for us? How is it even possible? How does this hope become our hope? In short, union with Christ. Notice uh, who Paul says that this hope is for. In verse 14, he talks about those who have fallen asleep in him, that is, in Christ. Telling us in verse 12, the dead in Christ will rise. In fact, more than 90 times in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, in Christ. Did you know that 
that in all the Apostle Paul's writings, never once does he use the word Christian. Not once. Rather, his most common descriptor for those who believe Jesus died and rose again, those who follow him in, in faith and in repentance, is this, in Christ. Take the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. He addresses it to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He goes on to describe how God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He writes, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He describes how God's purpose for his people was set forth in Christ, later saying, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. See, those who had come to believe that Jesus had died and rose again and who became followers of the risen Christ had a whole new standing that Paul can't stop repeating in Christ. And that change and the change that entailed in that is seen in the next chapter when Paul describes the former spiritual state of these people in this way. You were at that time separated from Christ. Why do you tell a people that you once were separated from Christ unless to tell them that they have been unseparated, united with Christ, in union with him? You see, Jesus was crucified, so he no longer lives. But then Jesus rose from the dead and lives anew. And yet for those in union with Christ, the same can be said for them too. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Obviously, he's writing this alive, but he's referring to the union with Christ in his death. But, he goes on, Christ lives in me. That's union with Christ in his resurrection. I mean, you might ask, okay, well, how does this work? If the believer is somehow, like, in Christ, like a smaller thing is maybe inside of a, a bigger thing, okay, if that's what union with Christ is, then how is Christ somehow in the believer so that he lives in, in them. Scripture tells us it's a mystery, but it's by his Spirit. That's why Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? How did that Spirit get there? The same way that we came to be in Christ, by faith. Going back to the Ephesian chapter where Paul goes on and on about being in Christ, he then says, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a, a deposit, like, like something you put into a bank, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You in Christ, and Christ in you, by faith, by his Spirit, that's union with Christ. Because of union with Christ, a spiritual union, what happened in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus applies to his followers as well. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life that is now credited to those who believe in him. We're united in his life. Scripture tells us that the penalty for sin, our cosmic treason against God, is death. But Jesus already died on the cross as a substitute for those who trust in him. We're united in his death. Jesus conquered the grave and rose again, and so his followers will also rise, united in his resurrection. And because there is a spiritual union, there will be a physical 
reunion. I'll say it again. Because we're united by faith with Jesus Christ, who rose again, we too will rise. Our union with Christ is the reason for the reunion of body and soul at the resurrection at Jesus' return. Because all believers are united to Christ. In the same way, those who are in Christ are united together as a family, and Jesus' return will mark the greatest family reunion of all time. And because those in Christ are united with the one who is eternal, who is the source of life, we too can experience eternal life, both now and with him forever. As he returns to make all things new. And until that day, we wait. We pray and proclaim these words of longing and expectation in the midst of the darkness that we endure. Not move that bus, but come, Lord Jesus. This is uh, not the first time that I've been asked to prepare a sermon on this passage. When I was in seminary, a group of us were actually assigned this passage and asked to create a, a sermon on it together. We jokingly called it Franken-Sermon. But one of the guys in my group was Chad Scruggs. As some of you know, Chad is the senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, where this past March, in a school right next door to the church that the church started, Chad's daughter Hallie was shot and killed. Just five days later, in a memorial service for his daughter, Chad spoke about why, of all places, despite talks about moving the service somewhere else, they chose to do it right there at that church, in the sanctuary, just a few hundred yards from where she had died. He said at the service, this is where my daughter learned about Jesus. And despite the dark hour that his family endured that week, Chad would go on to say, darkness doesn't get to win. This service is our protest against the powers of darkness, worshiping the resurrected Jesus, who is our only hope in life and in death, and to whom she, the one to whom she prayed, whom she loved, to whom she was always consecrated. And as he pointed to their communion table right in front of them, he reminded both them and probably himself, that she now has the very fullness of what the table of the Lord points to. And she is already, just as Jesus promised, with the Lord forever. That day, he grieved, but not as one without hope. You see, even as Chad reflected on the previous Sunday and the time that they spent together, that day would not be the last time that they worshiped together. Because one day there would be a reunion of souls and broken bodies made new. A reunion with his daughter. All because there will be a reunion with Jesus, who wipes away every tear and is coming back to this world to make all things new. Let me pray for us.